This is the Kol Hadash Podcast. The Jewish year is 5,780, and as we celebrate the high holidays of 2019, Rabbi Adam Shalom has chosen to reflect on the theme of old challenges anew. The next several episodes of the podcast will feature excerpts from our high holidays, of scripture or literature with a reflection, or the Rabbi's sermon. This is part six from Kol Nidre, Yom Kippur Evening. A Tale of Two Synagogues. The first synagogue is an Orthodox congregation that was established in Duluth, Minnesota in the late 19th century by Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe. By 1900, they were able to build a substantial synagogue building, and their generations celebrated holidays, life cycle events, the passage of time. By the second half of the 20th century, the area had become less Jewish as younger Jews moved away or were less interested in traditional Judaism or maybe married someone not Jewish and thus were not welcome in an Orthodox synagogue. Other traditional congregations in the area eventually closed or merged. By 2019, Hadass Israel had 75 members in charge of 14 Torah scrolls, an odd ratio of heirs to inheritance. Last month, the synagogue building caught on fire, burning down the building and destroying six of the 14 Torahs. The congregation found somewhere else to celebrate the high holidays, and they may still keep a regular prayer minion going, but it will never be the same. We know today that the fire was set accidentally by a homeless man trying to stay warm in the congregation's sukkah. It was not a hate crime. However, given recent events, we would not have been surprised if it were. The second synagogue has lived two lives so far. Its earlier life as Congregation Bethor began as a suburban reform temple, which evolved thanks to a visionary rabbi and committed members into one of the first humanistic Jewish congregations in the world. After 30 years, there was transition and conflict, and from that, Kol Hadash Humanistic Congregation emerged in 2001. We have gone through our own transitions and challenges. 18 years later, we look forward with optimism, a congregation where membership is about meaning and not money, a congregation that is doing Jewish differently, a place to think and to speak and to sing our humanistic Judaism with energy and integrity. Both of these synagogues are the American Jewish present. Challenges of integration, growing distance from the immigrant generation and its traditions, the fear and sometimes reality of anti-Semitism, the difficulty of getting along, the possibility of new beginnings. Which synagogue is the Jewish future? Is the Kiddush cup half half full or half empty? And is it full of celebratory wine or negative whining? (laughs) This high holiday season, we look at old challenges anew. We are not the first generation to ask what the Jewish future will look like, or if there will even be a Jewish future. After Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 BCE, Judean exiles asked the same question. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. 
How could we sing the songs of Yahweh while in a foreign land? The Judeans did figure out how to sing again. They learned to live in diaspora. 600 years later, after the second Jerusalem temple was destroyed, you may recall Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai calming anxieties about atonement without a temple by claiming we have another form of atonement as effective, deeds of loving kindness. Rabbi Zakkai ben Zakkai also made other changes to continue Judaism. If Rosh Hashanah fell on Shabbat, they used to blow the shofar in the Jerusalem temple only, but nowhere else. After the temple was destroyed, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai decreed that they should blow it wherever there was a court, as we do to this day. There have been other historical candidates for the third major Jewish destruction. The expulsion from Spain in 1492, the Khmelnytsky pogroms in Ukraine around 1650, the European Holocaust over 70 years ago. After each of these disasters, a Jewish future was questioned, yet we know a Jewish future there was. Today, there are almost 7 million Jews in Israel and the West Bank, 6 to 7.5 million Jews in the United States and Canada, depending on how you count, over a million in Europe, half a million in Latin America, and another half million around the rest of the world, for a total of around 15 million. We have not yet caught up to the pre-Holocaust 17 million, but, to paraphrase Mark Twain when his obituary appeared while he was still alive, report of our death is an exaggeration. Does it matter to the world, and not just to us, whether there will be any Jews 200 years from now in the 23rd century? Absolutely. For one thing, the 23rd century is when the original Star Trek is set, and imagining that anniversary without articles about the Jewish roots of Star Trek is inconceivable. (laughs) More seriously, think what would have had to happen in those 200 years that would result in zero Jews. There would have been a massive holocaust of a disaster in Israel, There would have been a massive surge of persecution in Europe and Latin America to drive Jews out or to drive them away from being Jewish. In the United States, there would have been many factors. Massive alienation from positive Jewish identity, massive persecution of Jewish institutions, some way to get Orthodox Jews to stop having children, and some way to stop up to half of their children from leaving Orthodoxy for more liberal Judaisms. For all of those things to have happened, what would have happened to American society? What civil liberties, what freedom of association and freedom of religion and freedom of speech would have been destroyed to make a world without Jews? In some ways, anti-Semitism is like a canary in a coal mine, an early warning sign of a crisis in liberal democracy and social cohesion. Over the last 20 years, 12 black churches have been vandalized, burned, or otherwise attacked. Jews are a much smaller percentage of the U.S. population, and in the same period, 20 Jewish institutions have been attacked in some way. This is not the oppression Olympics. It is sobering to note the statistical reality. Now, we do live in a very different world than the 1930s. Our police protect Jewish institutions, as they are doing outside right now. State and federal courts prosecute racist vandals who scurry to hide from the light. 
and popular culture rejects rabid anti-Semitism and racism rather than reinforcing it. Even from my youth 35 years ago, popular culture is much better. My childhood VHS tape of Disney's movie Peter Pan had a very racist song and dance called What Made the Red Man Red? with all of the terrible Native American stereotypes you could imagine. The movie was originally made in 1953, but they had no problem selling it in the 1980s. Today, you can find that scene on YouTube, but it is not in any movie version available from Disney, and that's good. Nevertheless, there is limited comfort when the true haters are emboldened to do more, say more, and say it louder. The fact that we are not the only ones hated gives us allies, but not a feeling of security. I had a discussion recently with the Unitarian Church, as we're moving forward on moving our offices here and more of our programming here as well, about their approach to security and adding cameras and whatever else we wanted to do. And their minister pointed out to me that Unitarian churches have also been targeted by racist violence because of their support for LGBTQ rights. You may have noticed the rainbow flag on your way into the building. Now, do you feel better or worse that they are also targeted? Civil society does not function only through enforcement by police and courts. Civil society also requires unwritten social contracts to tolerate difference, to channel disagreement into politics, to love your family and friends without hating others. Paradoxically, anti-Semitism can have the opposite of its intended effect, Anti-Semites want Jews to fade and disappear, but experiences with anti-Semitism can provoke a stubborn insistence on Jewishness, even a reconnection with family heritage. Some hide in fear, others stand up in defiance. After the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting last year, Jews who had not been to synagogue in years chose to show up for Shabbat. Many of us were here, supported by our friends in the North Shore Unitarian Church. Some may recall a story I told once about a rabbi in Eastern Europe during the time Napoleon was invading Russia. His followers asked him, for whom should we pray for victory, for Napoleon or for the Russian Tsar? The rabbi thought and said we should pray for the victory of the Tsar. And the Jews said, how could we pray for the Tsar? He's caused so much suffering in Jewish life. And the rabbi responded, if Napoleon wins, it will be good for the Jews, but bad for Judaism. Individual Jews will have freedom and opportunity, but Jewish cohesion may suffer. On the other hand, if the Tsar wins, it may be bad for Jews, but it will be good for Judaism and keeping us together. Will today's anti-Semitism be good for membership? Who wants to think about it? Unfortunately, the Enlightenment-influenced Western Europe that was supposed to be good for Jews and problematic for Judaism is now challenging for both. In France, since the year 2000, anti-Semitic hate crimes have gone from 90 a year to over 300, some years as high as 1,000. Jews are less than 1% of the French population, but 40 to 50% of the hate crimes are anti-Semitic. One in five French Jews personally report being harassed for being Jewish. In the UK, many British Jews have lost confidence that Labour Party leader Jeremy Corbyn will stand up to anti-Semitism in his party. And leaders of British Jewry have said they fear a Corbyn-led government would be an existential threat to their community. 
40% of Europeans in seven large European nations say that anti-Semitism is a growing problem in their country and that Jews there are at risk of violence. Even wearing a kippah or speaking Hebrew in public can be risky. Some of this is a carryover from the Israel-Palestine conflict, with large Muslim and Arab populations perpetuating prejudice from their nations of origin. And some is native growth from deep in European soil. To be sure, most European governments and their leaders have said the right things and responded the right way. Still, over the last 20 years, almost 10% of the French Jewish population has left, mostly for Israel or for America. It remains to be seen whether with greater Muslim integration to European culture and maybe some positive developments in the Middle East, the genie can be put back in the bottle. Or we may be facing Pandora's box, the demons already on the loose. In America, the Jewish future looks vibrant. It will look different from the Jewish present and very different from the Jewish past. These changes will reflect larger trends in American society and the world. That difference from the Jewish past is why some are pessimistic, their kiddush cup half-empty and draining. The thought process goes like this. Since the 1950s, most American Jews have been members of established synagogues. Today, many established synagogues are declining in membership and closing, so the Jewish future is in danger. And the same for other mainline religious institutions, as more young Americans are less religious than ever. In the 1950s, American Jews had ethnically Jewish parents. Today, many Jews find love and family with people of other heritage. Their children may or may not identify as Jewish, and growing numbers of Jews by choice have no ethnic Jewishness at all. Without ethnic Jewish heritage, without Yiddish and Kugel, the Jewish future is in danger. The same fear strikes white America facing ethnic mixing and demographic change. In the 1950s, most American Jews practiced a core of traditional Judaism, like kosher laws and traditional prayers. Today, most Jews are non-traditional, and there is no ritual consensus. Without tradition, the Jewish future is in danger. The general fear of this modern freedom to choose has driven some to evangelical and fundamentalist religions who do the choosing for you and tell you what tradition wants. Tradition, sings Tevye at the beginning of Fiddler on the Roof. The secret of the Fiddler story is that it is about the changing of tradition in the service of Jewish survival. The matchmaker is de demoted in favor of happy marriages for love. The family must leave its shtetl, but they leave for the America that viewers know to be a golden Medina, a golden land. Trains and sewing machines and steamships transformed Jewishness then as surely as smartphones and podcasting and YouTube are transforming it today. We live, as Rabbi Kariolisky has written, in a world of playlist Judaism. The original album and artist does not matter if you want to listen differently in your own way. A world where you can get your Starbucks coffee exactly how you like it will produce religion and culture that meet your needs, reflect your beliefs, celebrate your creativity. And for a community to thrive in that world, its members must know how to disagree without being disagreeable. The 21st century will be different, which means it will also be Jewishly different.
I just hope to retire before we see robot rabbis. <laughs> the same is true for these other fears. The Kiddush cup is half full and rising, but with a new vintage. These days there are better options beyond Manischewitz. Some synagogues are closing, but other Jewish communities are thriving with new and creative approaches to membership, community, and celebration. Podcasts, YouTube channels, Facebook groups, even online congregations like SecularSynagogue.com, led by a humanistic rabbi, by the way. In 10 or 20 years, we may no longer make a strong distinction between virtual life and real life. The emotions people feel, the support they experience, the learning they find, the friends they make through the internet are real friends, real emotions. The Jewish organizations that will survive and thrive will be those that can swim in the new currents. In Hebrew, synagogue is Beit Knesset, a house of meeting. That meeting can include prayer or study or celebration or all of the above. And it might not even have its own Beit, its own building. The synagogue is dying. Long live the synagogue. The new Jewish diversity produced by intermarriage, adoption, and conversion is only a threat to last century's Judaism. The new Jewish diversity is central to the new Judaism being born. The idea of looking Jewish will become increasingly strange because our Jewish communities will reflect the world's diversity. Being Jewish and Jewish heritage will continue to be important for some, and others will find meaning in doing Jewish, whatever their personal identity. Baking hamantaschen for Purim, or just eating them, participating in a Seder, lighting Hanukkah candles, those activities are not just for Jews anymore, and they haven't only been for Jews for a while. On most college campuses, there are more students with one Jewish parent than with two, and more of those students self-identify as Jewish than ever. One's desire to continue to feel Jewish, or to be Jewish, or to do Jewish, will not limit whom one loves and marries. Humanistic Judaism has celebrated this reality all along, and more Jewish communities are catching up. Tonight begins the Jewish Day of Atonement, when we confess our wrongs and strive to do better. And we are supposed to accept improved behavior without rubbing it in. However, I do believe that Reform and Conservative Judaism, who are now more intermarriage accepting than ever, still owe some teshuva, some repentance, to those generations of intermarrying Jews they drove away, the families they labeled as threats to the Jewish future and a new Holocaust. I am not exaggerating. Intermarriage is still sometimes compared to a Holocaust. Let me say it clearly. Marrying for love is the opposite of being murdered by hate. There are broader lessons from this Jewish experience for all people and for relationships between people. Accept that change is inevitable and can be good if accepted in the right spirit. We all have the right to express our personal desires and we need to communicate to find common ground. We do not always have to agree with our partners and friends if we practice how to disagree. What we do, how we treat each other with our actions is as important as who we say we are. And finally, smartphones have been bad enough for our relationships, so beware the robots. As for Israel itself, the Jewish future there has its own complications. 
What does Jewish mean for a Jewish state? If it means increasing rule by rabbinic Jewish law, we are decreasingly interested. The secular Jewish culture that Israelis have created and we celebrate will be harder to find. Already there are thousands of Israelis living in America by choice, a new diaspora. If Israel continues to, continues to insist on these three, being a democracy, being a demographically and culturally Jewish state, and controlling the West Bank, then something's going to give among those three. The new Israel, or Israelistein, or whatever it becomes, may or may not be good for the Jews, or for Judaism, or for the rights of those who live between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. At the same time, the risk of biological or even nuclear terrorism from Iran or Lebanon is definitely greater than zero. A dirty bomb spreading radiation does not need to be fully nuclear to still be a disaster. There are real risks to that Israeli-Jewish future, and not all of them are self-inflicted. At the same time, there are hundreds of organizations and thousands of people working for the kind of Israel we support and admire, an Israel that celebrates religious and ethnic diversity, a state for all of its citizens, a positive force for the Jewish future. In a month, I will be visiting that Israel to celebrate the ordination of new humanistic Israeli rabbis. I hope you will all come back to this very space and hear about it in a November Shabbat to come. Candidly, I cannot guarantee the future, especially in humanistic Judaism, since we are a decidedly non-profit organization. I do believe that we can be rationally optimistic about the Jewish future from our Jewish present. Predictions of doom can become self-fulfilling prophecies. No one gets onto a sinking ship. What we have to avoid most as we face these old challenges anew is the feeling that we can do nothing, because then we will do nothing, and what will be will be no matter what. To hear more about what we can do, I hope to see you tomorrow morning. A tale of two synagogues in the Jewish present, a declining traditional institution, and a growing innovative community. Which one is the Jewish future? In the old Jewish tradition, both are. We face the challenge of blending inherited tradition from the 20th century with the hope and creativity of the 21st. What will make the difference in a complex reality that can be half empty and going down, or half full and rising? You, and me, and we. Wishing you all a happy, healthy, and hopeful New Year. The Kol Hadash Podcast is a production of Repatriation Studios. This podcast was edited and produced by me, Ken Burke. Thanks for listening.